um, Well, last week we began looking at Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And uh, this deals with the law, and particularly it talks about Jesus' um, attitude and, and uh, knowledge and His complete reliance upon the Word, you know, what He believed about the Word, about the Scripture. And so we spent most of last week talking a little bit about... Um, you know, what we as a church, how important it is to us, what we believe about the Word of God, that it is indeed His Word and that we can trust it to kind of set the tone. And then we talked about the uh, superiority of God's Word because it is God's Word and that there's plenty of evidence to support all of that. We um, find my place here. Moving into verse 18 tonight, we're looking at the uh, permanence of Scripture. The permanence of Scripture. It is eternal, is what Jesus says here. And uh, that should be cause for great encouragement for all of us. Verse 18, He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That word dot, um, yoda, is um, the smallest the smallest stroke that's used in Hebrew. And yoda is the smallest letter uh, in the Greek alphabet. So what he's saying is that all of, um, all of the law, including the smallest things, when you think about both of these um, terms, if you, uh, you know what a seraph is, right? You know, if you, if you've got uh, F, the little, little thing right there, that's a seraph, right? That's a seraph. And in our language, that would be the smallest stroke. That would be the smallest part. So if we were looking at the English language, looking at the law in the English language, we would say, even the seraph will not pass away, he say. Will not. Heaven and earth will pass away before even that much of the law passes away. So he's really honing in here and pointing out uh, something for us that should be very encouraging to all of us. The law will be accomplished. Um, the tiniest parts will not be erased from the law. This is an emphatic statement about the inerrancy of Scripture, number one, that Jesus, when He said this, obviously we didn't have, we didn't have this, did we? We didn't have the completed canon written in our language so that we could read it, but He knew where it was going. He knew it would be available, and He's making this statement. It's one that we can hang our hat on as well, that this has stood the test of time, providential uh, work of God through the years to preserve it and to put it in our hands so that we can know the revelation of God uh, just like other generations before us have. And so he says not any small part of it is going to pass away, that we can put that kind of trust in it. Um, heaven and earth will pass away first, he says, before the Word of God does. Pretty interesting, huh? I heard a preacher say once upon a time that 
if you had the opportunity to be in heaven right now, that's not the most secure place you could be. The most secure place to be is what? In the Word of God. Because He says, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my Word's not going anywhere. That's, um, I don't think that's stated that way for uh, any flippant, flippant or uh, trivial reason. He uh, goes back to the idea of fulfill, the idea of filling up. The Word of God will be fulfilled. It will be, it will be filled up. Everything that's been laid out is going to be achieved and accomplished. You know, not in the sense of being completed, but in the sense of coming fully into life, fully into realization. That makes sense? Filling it up, not completing something that's been lacking but making it fully visible, achieving it. All right? Y'all with me? Am I confusing you? Okay. Sometimes you get that look on your face, you know. It's kind of like the mule looking at a new gate, right? So, what is that exactly? What? It's an analogy, Bob. I didn't call you a mule. But since we're on the subject. Let's don't go there. Moving along. I love you too, Bob. Arthur W. Pink said, and I quote, Everything in the law must be fulfilled or accomplished. Not only its prefigurations and prophecies, but its precepts and penalty. Fulfilled first personally and vicariously by and upon the surety. Fulfilled second and evangelically in and by his people. And fulfilled third in the doom of the wicked who shall experience its awful curse forever and ever. Instead of Christ being opposed to the law of God, he came here to magnify it and render it honorable. Rather than his teachings being subversive thereof, they confirmed and enforced it. What's your understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture? If I say the Scripture is sufficient, what does that, what does that say to you? What do you? How do you interpret that? It's enough. It's enough, okay. Doesn't need any help. We... Doesn't need any help. All right. Anything else? Efficiency of Scripture. It's enough. Needs no help. Have you? I mean, these are right answers. These are these are good answers. But do they represent what we believe and think? How we think? How we look at the Word of God? Do we look at it through that lens of sufficiency? Sometimes, when it's easy, right? When it's comfortable or when it... Nothing's going wrong. When nothing's going wrong, it's easy, right? But, and that's, that's a great point. If, if God says, um, I am um, faithful, my love is steadfast and enduring forever, 
which he says repeatedly throughout the Psalms. And when everything's going well, we feel loved. It's great. God is good, isn't he? But when everything starts to come apart at the seams and starts unraveling and life sends us in a different direction, can we still say that? Can we still rest in that? That God said, my love endures forever. It hasn't changed. We should, we should right? Um, but sometimes practicing the sufficiency of Scripture is much more difficult than entertaining the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe it's sufficient. Okay? I believe... How, how sufficient do I believe it? If I walk into the pulpit Sunday morning and walked up and read to you the Word of God, the text, and said, okay, there's the sermon. We're out of here. Would you all think I'd lost my mind? <laughs> Charles said, yeah. <laughs> See, that's all you're after, Linda. It's just short. Listen, short makes Christianettes. Right? We want the full-bodied Christians. We don't want sermonettes for Christianettes. Right? You teed that one up so nicely. But, but we should, shouldn't we, if the Word of God is sufficient. But what we want is we read the Scripture and then we want something else. You know, we want the feeling. We want the, we want the something else on top of it that gives us our confidence. But the Word of God is where the confidence should be. Romans 8.28, we pick on that one all the time, right? We love it. We love it. Romans 8.28, it says... And we know, and we know, K-N-O-W, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. We know, it says we, we know, which means we believe, we have confidence in, it's not open for discussion, it's not open for Inter uh, negotiation. It's settled, right? We know this thing. We know for those who love God, that is God's people, those who claim to love Him and are following Him, all things, A-L-L, -L, all things, which means the really great times, the really good times, the bad times, and the really horrible times. All things doesn't say that each of these is doing good, but he says that the synergy, the friction that's produced in these things together is producing good for us. So God is using that horrible thing that happens in our life, the bad news that we get, the painful message or experience that we have, He's using it. It doesn't mean that it's good in and of itself, but it's contributing to a formula that's producing good in us. Now, is that scripture sufficient? I've shared testimony that uh, Karen and I have when we were, um, we've been married about five years uh, when Karen's mother was killed in a car wreck. 
Um, her and two of Karen's aunts died in a matter of two days. And, uh, and several others that were in the vehicle were injured and in the hospital and all those kind of things. It was really not a good time. And it was so out of the blue and so unanticipated, it rocked our world. And I can remember, I can remember very few things in my life at this point. But one thing I remember is sitting in the den of my house for weeks after that and reading Romans 8. And reading Romans 8 and saying, Lord, I know that this is true because you've said it's true. I have a head knowledge that it's true. But boy, my heart doesn't get it right now. My heart's not getting it. God, honestly, I'm not sure I can believe it. Is what I'm saying. I know it. I know it because of who you are. So I'm trying to get there. But you have to, as the disciples said, Lord, help my unbelief. And, and I read this chapter over and over and over and over. And I wasn't, I wasn't committed to the fact that it was sufficient at the time. I wasn't sure it was. And that was probably the first, the first real test that I had as a minister. You know, where I had to decide. I mean, it was easy when things were good and there were scriptures that I liked. Okay? Jesus said that um, um, <laughs> can't call one up right now. Uh, John three sixteen somebody for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I believe that from my time I was a kid. I learned that. I believe that. That's sufficient for me. It it's sufficient. I I don't have any any qualms any quibble there but for weeks on end I had a lot of difficulty with Romans 8 but you know over time and I can't point to the particular time that it came to bear but the fog began to lift and God put this scripture in my heart that I was able to say you know what God I, it is sufficient I do believe it I believe it with all of my being and so it's become one of my life verses, obviously, because of that that moment. But all of Scripture fits this, right? This description. Jesus says every last stroke fits into this category. And heaven and earth will pass away before this passes away. And it is sufficient. It is adequate. It's more than adequate for what we need when we need it. So, idealistically, I should be able to walk in there Sunday morning, read Scripture, and say, this is it, folks. This is the Word of God. Go and, go and apply it. And it's sufficient. But we always feel like we have to help everything along, don't we? We need to help, help it along. Some people will even say that, you know, it's just not relevant. Today, we're, in other words, the the thing is, is we're too sophisticated. We've gotten too sophisticated. And the word of God hasn't kept up. Well, good luck with that. When you have that discussion with the Lord, if He allows that, I, good luck with that. You know, sufficiency means it is relevant. It doesn't need any help. 
It's perfect in every situation. Sufficiency of Scripture. He's making, he's making clear this permanence, this sufficiency. If not a single letter or stroke or tense of God's Word is going to pass away, we should receive it for what it is. The Word implanted which is able to save our souls, James 1.21 says. Its permanence should cause us to honor God's Word. Psalm 119.03. I'll tell you what, let's read some of these. Um, where should we start? I always start on this side of the room, don't I? I'm not starting with JC tonight. I'm going to start with Sam. Sam? Before you give me one, I was, gonna, I was reflecting back on some of the McShane reading we've been going through in Ezekiel. Uh, time after time, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And when I get to that point, I sort of pause. And, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. Give it to me. You know? Yeah. When you step in the pulpit, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And we're in Sunday school class. We open our, the Word. And yeah. It's, it's sufficient, no doubt about it. You know why? Because to me, it's holy. It's authoritative. It's supernatural. Let me show you all something before we read these verses. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse uh, 12. This is extra. I'm not charging you anything for this tonight, okay? This is a freebie. <laughs> Hebrews 4, verse 12. This is what the Word of the Lord says. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What's he saying? He's telling us how vibrant, how powerful, how authoritative, how all-knowing, all-penetrating, how precise the Word of God is. If you have any doubts, that verse right there is where you can go and hang your hat. He's saying that it's so sharp, it's so penetrating, that it can divide soul from spirit. What do you think that means? That's sharp. It's pretty sharp. You know, we, we put soul and spirit together. It's kind of who we are. It's the essence of who we are inside these bodies of clay, right? It's the essence of our identity. Soul and spirit. The mind, the heart, the desires everything that makes us who we are. He says the Word of God can separate. The Word of God can pierce through and part and distinguish between those. They're so close together. Classically understood, isn't that that's not saying that human beings are three parts. No, 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 no. no. It's like saying I'm, I'm, so, I'm finer than a frog hair split three ways, right? Yeah, that's that. not what he's saying. He's saying... And by, by, by virtue of what he says here, tells us that that's not what he's saying. Because he says the Word of God is so short, sharp that it can divide those things, so they're not normally divided that way. Comprehend? <laughs> he says that, that the Word of God is 
so penetrating that when he, he talks about it, um, as he says, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. The picture, the, the, the real picture that goes with this is having someone with their head bent back and the, word, the sword being drawn and laid bare right here against the very life of, of this person. That this person is brought, brought under this authority, this scrutiny, this subjectiveness to the Word of God, submission to the Word of God, that that's what the Word of God does in all of our lives, if we pay any attention. All right. Off of that detour and back to um, Sam, James 1, 21. No, I read that one. Psalm 119, 103. Psalm 119, 103. Martha, you want one? No, I made a mistake. I brought my chronological Bible and I can't. Okay. It How about you, Gene? Okay. Second uh, Timothy 2 15. Bob, Jeremiah 15, 16. Judy, Colossians 3, 16. Charles, Jude 3. Lilian, uh, Lily. Second uh, Timothy four two. Okay, Sam. How sweet are your words to my face, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Who's next, Gene? Tell me again, Second Timothy one. Two fifteen. The permanence of God's word should encourage, challenge, exhort us even to uh, to revere it. We should have we should have a, a high view of it, as Sam was saying earlier, to honor God's word. It needs that place in our lives. That's why uh, we see in modern culture, in modern church, uh, even the dismissiveness with which the word of God is treated is is an egregious error on the part of modern Christianity. Um, to just flippantly cast it away. And that comes through the years of higher criticism, you know, holding it up to greater scrutiny and picking apart, thinking we found all these contradictions and things of that nature. And most of it is, um, most all of it is manufactured. You ready, Jean? Yes. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and all, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Okay, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And Colossians three sixteen. Um, Jude 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith 
It was once for all entrusted to the saints. Okay, and 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Okay. So what do these verses tell us? One, we should honor the Word of God. We should have a, a high view of the Word of God. Two, we should obey the Word of God. If it has this high place and it has this power and authority, then we have a responsibility, if we claim to be God's people, to bring ourselves under its submission, under its authority, to obey it. Um, what does James say? Be ye doers of the Word of God and not hearers only, right? Um, and we should defend it. We should be able to stand with the Word of God no matter what's going on around us. The fact that the majority of people don't have that high view of Scripture is no excuse for us to abandon it. It's, um, it's, hard, to, it's hard to make this case that we can adequately defend the Word of God because you know God's Word doesn't necessarily need defending. But He does say that we need to be willing to stand with it to stand for it, right? And then we should be able to proclaim it. Preach. Preach it. Proclaim it. And we put it, we put it out there understanding it's sufficient. It's sufficient in and of itself. I'll give you an illustration. And this is something that, that I've had to struggle with through the years. So this is, uh, this is confessional time for your pastor. All right? <laughs> I was I was raised like many under um, you'll appreciate this Kyle under Finneyism, which Charles Finney was um, one of the uh, forerunners, if not the forerunner, in what we would call um, manipulative evangelism. You know where you manipulate a service, manipulate people's emotions and things like that, and then manipulate altar calls and things like that, causing people to make decisions, okay? Um, now, I don't want you to hear that I'm, I'm saying that no one can ever be saved or converted in that, in that fashion because God can do whatever God wants. But here in America, we turned that into a pastime. We turned it into what church has become, and, and we still live in the afterglow of that, even right here at good old Crabapple, Right? Uh, I can tell you, I've been asked on numbers of times why we don't do evangelistic meetings anymore. You know, evangelism meetings or revivals. Well, that's one of the reasons, you know, uh, is that those things became very manipulative. And, and what happens when you, when you have manipulation involved is that decisions that we think people made one day are not in evidence a few days after or a few weeks or a few months later, Okay. It's, it's men persuading using persuasive techniques. One of those techniques that evangelists used for years in mass crusade-type meetings is that they had people scattered throughout the congregation. And when it came time for the net to be drawn, the people who were counselors, decision counselors, things of that nature, scattered out, would get up and start making their way down the movement would encourage people to make decisions, to get up and, and move, okay? That's the psychology behind some of it. Now, again, some of these things, you may have been converted that way. God bless you if you were. I mean, I'm not saying God can use anything, right? 
he spoke through a, a donkey, he can, he can certainly do what he wants to do. But we in American churches have, have used that, and we've created a lot of um, imitation or fraudulent followers of Christ through the years. People that come in, and they may have heard the gospel, they may have made some sort of decision that was a man-made decision, and then they've fallen away and gone on about their business, and so it, there's no fruit remaining in their lives, right? That's the difference between men who believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and those that trust in themselves and their abilities to persuade and to cause something to happen, right? And so I was, I was raised in that kind of, as most of us were, I was raised around that kind of stuff. And, and so that's what I came into ministry. And so you spent, I spent a lot of time in the early, early days learning how to make an altar call, learning how to present the, to the, the, the call, the decision time, because I wanted to be good at that because that was the most critical part, right? That's the thinking we have. You don't hear as much of that out of me here now, do you? In fact, I get criticized sometimes because I don't give an altar call. Well, listen, some of you may be in this room, but I've had people that'll come up and they'll apologize, essentially, because they say, boy, that was a good sermon. I just wish, you know, we'd have seen somebody respond. Well, 30 years ago, that bothered me that nobody responded. Until I began to realize that the Word of God is sufficient, people did respond. Just because there wasn't any visible evidence of the response, the Word of God says that it doesn't return void. Mm -hmm. If we proclaim the Word of God, believing and trusting in Him, the Word of God does not return void. Mm -hmm. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's separating soul from spirit. It's doing its work. It doesn't need me to help it. My job is to is to try to make plain what God is saying. Try to make clear what God is saying in His Word and leave the rest of it up to Him. That's all He's asked me to do. To use a, a really um, juvenile analogy, I'm just the paper boy. I throw the newspaper against the door. Then from there, it's between the editor and you, Right? I'm just the delivery boy. That's all I do. And if I try to do more than that, then I'm saying I don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe it needs help. And that is the biggest battle I have week by week in preparing messages, is that, Jerry, don't try to help the Word of God. Just get it out there. Was it Billy Graham said about being asked about did he feel like he needed to defend the Word of God back when the, the higher criticism, uh, liberalism versus conservatism uh, arguments were at their height, their zenith, and somebody said, do you feel like you need to defend the Word of God? And he said, no, I just need to, it's a lion, I just need to release it. I need to uncage it. The Word of God's perfectly sufficient and able to defend itself. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that or not? We may say we do, but do we practice it? You know, do we, do we walk in it? Jerry, I find there's a nuance to that. that I've experienced I thought you might. <laughs> you know, some of the struggles I've had with, with 
sometimes I find that my emotional states want to interfere with what I, I know to be true. And that navigating that is very difficult. And sometimes I often use a disturbed emotional state with what I, I trust and know to be true. And can conflate the two things and it's very difficult to navigate. And sometimes I think that, that happens to all of us at some point or another. And it's hard to tell sometimes if we're doubting or not trusting or, or we're just temporarily disturbed by a circumstance. I absolutely agree with that. I, I think what I was sharing about when Karen's mother died and I spent weeks pondering and, and meditating upon Romans 8, the emotion, the raw emotion of loss and mourning and those things was serving as a roadblock. It's serving as a fallen creation that's, that's distorting our ability to believe. Okay? This is why the disciples looked at Jesus and said, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We know what you're saying is true. We believe you. We have confidence in you. But, Lord, it's so hard to believe. It's, it's easy for me to believe, uh, King. It's easy for me to believe and say God is going to be sufficient in what you're dealing with. And you can trust Him. Because it's not me. You see? Mm -hmm. Life's good right now for me. You're going through a little bit of a storm easy for me to preach to you and say brother just trust God he's sufficient he's able he's gonna he's got a plan in mind next week it may be me you know and I'm gonna say I don't want to hear that stuff let's be honest right there are times there's times in my life when I go you know what God I don't want to hear that I don't want to hear that now I'm not going to be I'm not going to be that audacious because you know I'm a pastor, <laughs> so I can't be that audacious and and say it out loud. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go do something else and distract myself so I don't have to listen to it. I put my fingers in my ear and go la 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 la. Because you know you know you sit down you know there are things going on in your life you know when things are not where they need to be you know when you've got challenges going on. And you sit down with God and you open up the Word of God. And it doesn't matter where you open. You think you can outsmart Him and that you can go, well, you know what? God can't get at me over in Psalms. Right? Good luck with that. Because He's going to go right straight for it. You go in you say, Lord, I'm here to do my bidding today with you. Have my time with you. And you think you've outsmarted God. Because you're not going to Romans today. I'm not going to Romans. I, I don't, he can't make me turn there. I'm going to Leviticus today. <laughs> I, I'm going to the you know Song of Solomon today. I'm going somewhere where I think I can manipulate God and get what I need. I can do my quiet time, have my spiritual time with God, and keep Him all out of my business. Right? It don't work. He's going to show up right there. He may let you think for a verse or two that you've got it, and then it's going to come crashing right in and say, oh, by the way, Jerry, look, you know we've got to talk about this, right? <laughs> and so what I'm going to do is say, well, oh, yeah, that's right. I've got to go do so-and-so. I've got an appointment. I've got to make a phone call. The brain starts chasing after those things because Jerry doesn't want to deal with it right now. I don't want to hear it because... I'm not sure I want to believe it. And even if I had to believe it, I'm not sure I want to believe it because of the implications that travel with it. 
I may have to give up a sin. I may have to give up something that's comfortable. I may have to subject myself to something that's quite painful. I may have to die to something. I may have to mortify something, Bob. So, I don't know how we got there, but maybe um, maybe it'll be a good trip for you. Let's talk about the value of Scripture. We've got, we got to go quickly here. In verse 19, Jesus points out His kingdom people must not diminish or disobey the law. Now, this kind of travels together. It's true that in Christ we are free in many ways from the law, yet we still live according to the moral law because we are in Christ. In light of His attitude about and response to the law, He shares His expectations for His followers. So what's, what does this mean? What is the value of the, of the Scripture, the law? I mean, it's what we need, isn't it? We, we rebel against it. We don't, want, we don't want this authority in our lives. This is where we live today in, this, in today's world. We are a lawless people for the most part. Are you a rule follower? How many rule followers have I got in here? Hey, got a few. I'm a rule follower. Well, no, you're not. Who's rules? There's rules and then there's rules. Yeah, let me, let me just say to all you rule followers, welcome to the curse. Right? Right? Listen, here's what happened to me the other day. I'm coming down the street. I'm coming down 280. I'm coming down Birmingham Highway. All right? Um, I'm not really watching because there's a string of traffic in front of me and behind me. Okay? I get to the roundabout. You get to the roundabout. As I pull into the roundabout, as the car passes me and goes around me. And I'm thinking, rule breaker, rule breaker, rule breaker. Curse on you, curse on you. Make the wheels fall off of your car now. And it's... Huh? Well, it's not about me, Linda. It's about this guy. But everywhere you look, there's rule breakers. This morning I'm driving in, okay? This morning. 5.30 in the morning, I'm driving in. Okay, there's not supposed to be anybody on the road at that time. You are. I'm driving, I'm driving the speed limit, okay? I'm driving the speed limit. Guy runs up behind me. He's riding my bumper. This is part of my sanctification, y'all, so you know how to pray for me. He's riding my bumper with his lights on bright. Oh. He's not nice. No. He's, he's unaware. I'm convinced of that. People will say, well, why don't you just pull off? And I say, I'm a rule follower. I don't pull over for those kind of maniacs. If I pull over, he'll just do it to somebody else. Started down a hill up here. Double yellow line. What does he do? Out and around he goes. Folks, this happens to me every week. <laughs> now, there's two things at work here. One is we live in a culture that is increasingly lawless. It's what is good for me at this moment. People are making it, it's existentialism. On steroids, I think. They're, it's all about me and just mine and what I want and need at the moment. It doesn't matter what works for me. You just get out of my way. I'm coming through. 
The second thing is I'm being serious. This is part of my sanctification. It's more than coincidental that it happens as much to me as it does. God knows that it sets me off. I come in at 5.30 to avoid road rage. I come in at 5.30 to avoid traffic so that I can be in a good state of mind and get before the Lord and have my quiet time. And the enemy makes sure that he wakes up every nut driver in the area to converge on my route. And God says, yes, this will be good for Jerry. He needs this. Because <laughs> I'm going to get this out of him one of these days. So y'all can know how to pray for me. But we need the Word of God. We need those guardrails that keep us where on the right path. And that's what the Word of God does. It has value in our lives. It's not imposing a curse or difficulty on us or punishment. It's for our protection. It's for our guidance. It's for our direction. No one wants to be accountable to anyone. This is true even in the church today. This is true even in the church today. I'm not going to go there. (laughs) We have to pay for that part? Let's go. Well, listen, there's a reason that churches, one, one one of the key things that Scripture stresses about church bodies, about the, the body of Christ together, is holding each other accountable, encouraging each other, being iron sharpening iron, holding, holding each other to the faith, and disciplining each other. You know, we do it with our kids, don't we? We, we don't just allow our kids to live lawless because we know if they grow up that way, they're going to do harm to themselves and maybe to others. They're going to wreck their lives, right? But when it comes to our Christian faith, Somehow we think we're smarter than God. Well, God, you know, that's not loving for me to go to Charles and say, Charles, I, I see sin in your life here. And, and, you know, I'm your brother, and I think you should, I want to pray with you and help you not allow this sin to wreck your testimony. But most people in churches today will go, not going there, it's not my business. <laughs> Scripture says it is our business. It is our business. This is what we do for each other. Not to each other, but for each other. So churches are guilty of this too. We pull back. We've become lawless. And it's one of the reasons that our churches then lose their power and their effectiveness. We become apathetic and indifferent. And we just live and let live. Uh, Yes, sir? Who's this? The Greasy Spoons. What, what are y'all's names again? The bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, or what is it? Are you done mocking? No, I'm asking you. What's the name of your band? Somebody here might want to know. Bad luck and trouble. Bad luck and trouble. Okay. So Chip and somebody figured something out, not playing what I'm talking about. And Sam turns to me and says, "Hey, will you shut up and quit playing so they can talk?" I said, "Okay." <laughs> it was appropriate at the time. <laughs> I'm just saying it was an illustration of what you were talking about. Discipline. Uh, I, it, was, it was what I needed to hear at the moment. Sweet. It's breaking the rule. All right. I want to finish this up very quickly. The fourth one we find in verse 20 is the purpose of Scripture. What's the purpose of Scripture? The purpose of Scripture 
Jesus here is confronting the false teaching of salvation by self-effort. In verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. What kind of righteousness is he talking about that the scribes and Pharisees had? You remember the parable he told? Luke chapter 18, he tells the parable of the, of the Pharisee that goes up to the temple to pray. And there's the, the publican, the tax gatherer. Tax collectors were at the bottom rung of society. Everybody hated them, despised them because they felt like they were stealing money from everybody. They were sticking it in their pockets and they were working with the government, with the Romans. And so they didn't, nobody had any use for them. These two men come in. Pharisees were at the top of the food chain, right? They are the religious leaders. They are the respected people. They could take a scroll of Scripture and put a pen through it and tell you without unrolling it what letters in the Scripture passage had passed through. That's how well they knew the law. Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple at the same time praying. And the, and the Pharisee is boasting in his prayer to the Lord. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that I was born a Pharisee that I am a Pharisee, that I'm a good Pharisee, blah, 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 and that I'm not like these tax collectors that are at the bottom of the food chain. That's his prayer. That's his self-righteousness on display, on parade, okay? The tax gatherer, on the other hand, is not even in the center of the temple. He's off to the side. He doesn't even feel he has merited the opportunity to come and stand anywhere in a prominent place in the temple. He cannot lift his head up toward God. He doesn't know what to say. He's beating his chest, which was a sign of disgust with himself, of disappointment with himself, and crying out to God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, which one's justified? Which one went home justified? Which one? Yeah, because he can't. He approached God in the way that a fallen, broken vessel, hum, human, wrapped up in depravity, should approach God. I have nothing to offer but my sin. Instead of the guy that's proud and audacious and conceited and all the all the good things that go with it. And so Jesus is saying. Your righteousness must exceed that of the proud, arrogant Pharisee who thinks he's righteous. So how do you get there? Because we're all kind of cut out of the same cloth, aren't we? Mm -hmm. We only get there through the righteousness that Christ provides, right? Our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees who thought they had the corner market on, on righteousness. But Jesus said, there's a greater righteousness. There's a perfect righteousness, a holiness that only God can provide, only He can impute to you, and it's Christ's righteousness. That's what it takes to see the kingdom of heaven. And only God can provide it. Okay, we probably didn't cover all the things, but we got the gist of it, 